0: Hi, I'm Sylvain Bertolo, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. My guest today is Mark Duman, and we're going to talk about type 2 diabetes. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining me. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. Other than having type 2 diabetes, but... uh interestingly enough one could say that in in my side of things because the disease is potentially able to reverse or as they prefer to say put into remission um having found out about it actually could be a bit of a wake up call and allow me to live a better lifestyle than had I not known about it but i know that makes me different from many people who have other long term conditions
0: okay well we'll we'll go into that in a in a bit and i'm curious to to learn more about that well, we always start with a song on the podcast. So what song did you choose and why did you choose that song?
1: Well, I was torn, I have to be honest, between two two songs. Sister Sledge, We Are Family, because it's just a great sounds and really wants me to make me dance. And I like the idea of family, both both my nuclear family, who are obviously very important to me, but also my extended family. And I think especially what's happening in the world just now is having to think a little bit more about global and, and, and all being part of a family. Uh, and the second one is uh, Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Um, it's just it's just such a great song. It's just, it wakes you up uh, to, dare I say, the more negative side of life and, and perhaps some of those forces that can pull us in the wrong direction. Again, I think given what's happening is uh, we shouldn't have, we have sympathy for the devil within us and within society, dare I say uh we need to focus more on the family bit so maybe that's both those it's not not a dance song for me the sympathy for the devil one um but it does when i hear it very rarely now i'm like oh just listen to the lyrics of this you know it's it's a very powerful song
0: you just made me want to go back and listen to it because i haven't listened to that one for ages but yeah two two very good songs so I'll let you off with having two songs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very
1: much. Thank you very much. I might play them both later as well, actually. I'm not even sure my much younger family... Um, I mean, I, I find this now being 55 years of age, there's not a, a lot of culture that, uh, and, and references that I make that no one knows what I'm talking about, You know, whether it's to films or movies or to songs, and they sort of look at me, and I do a lot of lectures and a lot of public speaking, and I realise now that I'm in the, I'm in the older guard,
0: yeah where you have to explain the references it's it's not a good sign
1: <laughs> <laughs> no it's a good sign it's it's, bit, it's 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 a sign of of longevity it's a sign of yeah. wisdom it's a sign of experience so i think it's about how we frame it um you know and one of the things i'm trying to work on is positivity um and we touched on that earlier about you know is is a long-term condition uh, or an acute illness a, a life sentence so to speak or Are there ways perhaps we can turn disadvantage into advantage? So, again, something to perhaps explore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So let's talk about uh, type 2 diabetes then. Um, How did you find out about it?
1: So 13 years ago, I was trying to apply for critical illness cover. I run a small boutique consulting business that helps life science companies better engage with patients and uh, looks at the use of digital health and my wife said to me you know if you're the primary breadwinner could you go and get some sort of insurance just in case god forbid something happens to you Mm -hmm. so I went off to my local GP my general practitioner here in the UK uh, paid to get a sort of private consultation he took some bloods and about four days later uh, a message saying can you please contact us there's something in your with your bloods which (laughs) always makes you very nervous you're thinking yeah yeah. you know and again i think in terms of health literacy and communication and breaking bad news i think there needs to be something but we need to work on that we can't just send somebody a text saying there's something in your blood's coming to see us i think we need to be a little bit more specific and again you know uh, that's something to perhaps again explore. But anyway, long story short, I went along, you know, had done, had you know, and uh, found out from that that uh, lo and behold, I was I wasn't even pre-diabetic; I was diabetic. Uh, and interestingly enough, the doctor who I loved dearly made assumptions because I have a pharmacy background and said, "Oh, here's some metformin. Take it twice a day. Uh, thanks very much. Goodbye." And you'll know what to do. And wow, it wasn't okay. it, it wasn't dismissive. It was just making assumptions that as a fellow healthcare professional I knew what diabetes was, which I did from a clinical point of view, but I didn't know from a I didn't know from a from a practice point of view. So um, it made me think a little bit, and it took me a long time, which we'll come into to, to begin to turn from a professional perspective into a patient perspective, but we might get into that as well.
0: Okay. Uh, obviously you only have your your experience but it seems a bit odd to to be given medication without much more explanation than like take it twice a day when it's something like diabetes
1: yeah i i was i was quite surprised i mean i, I expected sort of dietary advice and activity advice and lifestyle broadly and I don't know. What, so I can't speak for other patients, as we, as you've said, but I didn't know whether the assumption was made, you know, go lose some weight. Uh, you know, to me, the first the first, you know, when we talk about guidance, the first thing is to is to look at lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure where where that thinking came from. Um, and I actually went back and said, uh, could I have some health psychology support with regard to my uh, approach to eating and my 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 relationship with food? Which I still struggle with, um, if I'm honest. It's you know that, that that there's a there's a big there's a big topic in there which I think we all, to varying degrees, have. Uh, given today's society and the, in most cases, the at least from a Western point of view, the easy, too easy access to food and to bad food, mm-hmm. uh, or not, no, I wouldn't say bad food. Maybe that's the wrong, but to, to food that's not as good for you as other food is. But yeah, I was quite surprised, and it, and it made me think a little bit about. The whole way that we actually interact with patients, you know, do we see them as, in my case, a broken pancreas, and my job is simply to cure or uh, treat the broken pancreas, or do we see the person behind the patient? And I think in that instance, there were assumptions made. You know, you're you're a patient who's a pharmacist. You'll understand the islets of Langerhans and drug receptor theory. So here's the here's the, and you'll understand behavior change. So go and do that. Um, you know, so. I, I, you know, we have, we have in the UK something called in England at least the Personalised Care Institute, run by NHS England, and the fact that that organisation has been set up three years ago and is now training, I think they've delivered seventy thousand online education courses to clinicians uh, and other care professionals, looking at trying to make them more personalised, indicates that we're still quite medical in our in our approach to healthcare. Um, yeah, I often quote the fact that I think again a global study showed that we spend in modern you know uh, healthcare systems about eighty eight percent of the budget on access to healthcare and only about four percent on prevention. So again, you know, we we have a the the, the the society stroke system has a vested interest. Much easier for me to pop a, t- a pill. Than it is for me to make lifestyle changes, and we're seeing that now with some of the uh, medicines, anti-obesity medicines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, we're we're in a quick fix society.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and it, I've always wondered actually: is um, is prevention that hard, or is it that prevention? is not measurable and you can't really say if you're being effective or not? Or, or is it that that our society is set in this way where we're fixing what's wrong rather than trying to find the root cause of, of the problem and fight it?
1: I, I think it's all of the above. I think, you know, uh, I often say to people, look, you know, if you think of, you know, the best behavioral change uh, from a health perspective, change uh, input in the last few years it's brushing teeth i mean we brush most of us brush teeth twice a day now mm-hmm. that's a massive public health success mm-hmm. um there are certain parts of society and, and i think we're getting more and more polarized who will look after themselves and not have water that's got fluoride in it or, or it has to be purified because of the stuff that's added to it um there are those at the other end that will eat fast food on a daily basis you know there, there there's there's a there's a massive uh, no pun intended uh move towards you know an obesogenic diet you know and and you know I remember taking I'm I'm orthodox Jewish and therefore have I have an added uh, uh, what's the word criteria on my food it needs to be kosher so you know so I, it means that I don't have the same access to the quantity of food and i took one of my colleagues uh into a kosher delicatessen he said mark there's hardly anything you can eat in here you know because it comes from a traditional background and there's a lot of oil in the food uh potato uh coming from poorer backgrounds from the from eastern europe where there'd be a small amount of meat if any and it was all potato and rice and starches and things like that to fill people up um you know, we, we now know that you know a, a car I would suggest that a carbohydrate-laden diet is not the best, and yet mm-hmm. we still have confusion it seems amongst authorities and governments uh, and dietitians who are still suggesting that you know we have a you know the, the wonderful plate that's made up with carbs and the this, and this thing. I've, I've cut carbs primarily out of my diet, I've lost weight, my blood's are better. but uh, so there's an awful lot of confusion about food. I think prevention, is a behavioural change attitude. And I think it's hard for clinicians to get into the person behind the patient. You know, it's much yeah. easier to look at my pancreas, my liver, my mental health as individual organs that you treat and you fix than mm-hmm. trying to understand the complexity of the, the person behind that. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think there's it's not just about the numbers and how easy or not it is to measure prevention. I think it's more complicated. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so you got your diagnosis uh you said thirteen years ago. Did you did you have an explanation why um you developed type two diabetes or not?
1: Well, A overweight, B genetic predisposition. My father got it later in life. Uh and it actually turns out that um there's there's we we potentially have a gen a, a genetic um issue somewhere in the family we haven't all got tested yet but something came up from one of one of the extended members of my family that indicated there was a rare a more rare genetic form of that gene that made us more predisposed to diabetes than the general population so my wife and i need to get tested um and as always my wife blames me but uh it, and she's probably right as she is most of the time but uh it probably is my side of the family but we haven't yet got that checked out but uh so so there's something a little bit more than just the normal sort of predisposition or whatever
0: yeah okay and that, how does it affect you like did you before you got that diagnosis did you well, you, you were not aware of it, obviously, but after that, were you more aware that it affected you, your yeah. body, or not?
1: Uh, sweaty, uh, running to the toilet a little bit more, always feeling thirsty. Um, so, yeah, there were some sort of lifestyle behaviors that that were that that I didn't really put two and two together and think, "Oh, this is this is what I've got." Um, it took me a long, long time to move beyond what I'd call was a sort of uh, health literacy numbers approach. You know, your BMI is this and your LDL is this and your HbA1c is this. And as I said earlier, I understood what those meant and many don't, um, but it didn't impact me as a person. I sort of just took my tablets and and, and ignored it sort of and just got on with life. And then I was sitting... Three four years ago, with my then eight-year-old daughter, nine-year-old daughter, and uh, having breakfast, and I think it had like ice cream for breakfast. And I suddenly thought to myself, "Hold on a minute, you know, if I want to be at your wedding, in, please God, ten years time, and I want to have and I want to be there, a but b, I want to have my eyes, my kidneys, and my feet still intact. Mm-hmm. I need to I need to change my behaviours. And so it was that sort of my daughter became my personal motivation, not not the numbers. But but a sort of realization that if I did if I kept letting this disease and verticomas and my lifestyle control me, I'd have serious long-term complications. So it it was that that woke me up to it. And I think there's a key in there for people. What is it that wakes people up to that behavior change? Is it? thinking about the future is it giving them numbers that mean something to them there's colleagues for example who do work on something called the diabetes age and the heart age and what that does is gives them takes their medical parameters and turns it into an age that is often a few a good few years more than their chronological age so you turn around to a 35 year old and say your heart age is 62 your diabetes age is 58 and people go what what that, that means a lot more to them than their HbA one Cs. Potentially, some people do love numbers. There's, there's there's a colleague of mine, you know, who who's got MS, and you know, she very much is is what I call a quantified self patient, and manages herself and her numbers. I think it goes back to that point that we need to see the person and talk to that person and say, what, what motivates you? Is it the fear of complications? Is it, your, is it current data? I'm watching your numbers every day. Uh, and, and if you think of my colleagues who have, t- who have type 1, I cannot think of another disease state where patients are regularly, you know, four, five, six times a day taking bloods and dose adjusting and titrating their medicines according to the outcomes of those. That, that's unbelievable self-management. Um, why can't we take that model, find out what makes the type ones tick, uh, they need to stay alive, et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and distill that into lifestyle changes for other conditions, for cancer, for kidney, for cardiovascular. So there's there's some real lessons where I think diabetes um, could become a poster boy, so to speak, for mm-hmm or the lifestyle treatment and interventions for a lot of other conditions. And it goes back to what the core thing that's coming out from, from our discussion, which is health psychology, behavior change, seeing the patient. Um, I wrote an article a couple of years ago now. It's coming up for its two-year anniversary in December. And it talks about five vital signs that we have. It says, you know, what is a patient's illness perception? So is my diabetes just a touch of sugar that my granny has and she's still alive? or the disease that's life-threatening and took my father too early? What's my medicine's perception? Do I see medicines as a, as, a, as a cure or as a poison? Some people don't want to take medicines and introduce false substances to their body. Some people say, yeah, please, please help me take the medicine. What's my degree of health literacy? What's my degree of digital literacy? And what's my degree of motivation? And all five of these have validated questionnaires and can be measured. And if instead of just looking clinically at what's your body weight, what's your height, what's your HbA1c. If we began to look at some of the parameters that describe my attitudes to illness and to medicines and to literacy, and that became a standard part of clinical and healthcare, I think would be go a long way to actually deliver healthcare that was more personalized and person-centered.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because we hear a lot about personalized medicine at the moment, it's getting bigger and bigger, and it, it, some see it as the future of of medicine in a way. Um, that, that's,
1: we don't, that's that's medicine that is personalized. Yeah, yeah, but, medicine, but we don't talk about
0: personalized healthcare. Yeah,
1: it's again, it's technology. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You know, I was listening to a presentation at ESMO, the the European Society of Medical Oncology in Madrid, a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking about a N equals one, i.e., a personalized cancer vaccine for every individual based upon their genomic profiling. And that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Don't know how much it's going to cost, but that's fantastic personalized medicine. But I worry a little bit that says if we've got issues where patients, at the moment aren't taking even generalized medicines because we're not understanding them as people and patients, how much more so is it going to cost us to deliver personalized medicines that because we still don't understand the person, they end up not taking? I mean, I'm a pharmacist by background, uh, albeit I haven't practiced clinically for a long time, and I get very sad to be part of a profession, and they're not going to like me saying this, but where 50% of our patients don't take medicines as prescribed. If we are Mm -hmm. the last touch point, what are we doing so wrong or what could we do better to enable and engage and inform and understand those people about the intentional and unintentional barriers to them taking medicines? Yeah. Um, and, and lastly, on this point, I'm not all about patient rights. I'm also about patient responsibilities. Should we we, we sign a contract for our mobile, mobile phones? We sign a contract for our, for our, our mortgages. Um, should we be signing a contract for medicines taking? I have a responsibility if I'm going to take medicines in a a public health system like the NHS, like the UK, what's my responsibility to take them? And should I be signing a contract on my side that says I will do my best to take the medicines? And if I don't, I will have support mechanisms to reach out and help me to take them, and and I'll do my best. You know, We've got to move away from what I'd call a dispensing and be damned model and to really start focusing on outcomes-based medicines taking.
0: Yeah, yeah. All very good points. Um, so, going back to what you said earlier about lifestyle changes, so how did you adapt uh, since when you when you had that moment when you realized that you wanted to be there for for your daughter, which was your motivation? So, I.
1: I try very hard unsuccessfully about once or twice a week cause I still have this binge mentality now and again. And, you know, I had a binge last night, which wasn't very good. Um, but I try very hard to have three protein based meals a day with lots of green, uh, sm- very small amount of carbs, um, to do 10,000 steps a day, to go to the gym three times a week and actually do, um, workouts and actually try and build my muscle mass in order to increase metabolism. um, I eat lots of Greek yogurt in the morning. That's my, that's my staple. You know, it's 10 grams of protein per 100 grams, and it's only 2 grams of sugar. Um, but it's expensive, you know. Going to the gym three times a week, and I happen to have a trainer, is also expensive. So I'm privileged in that, well, at least at the moment financially, I'm not sure what the future looks like, but, you know, I, I can afford Greek yogurt and a trainer. Yeah. Maybe maybe instead of investing, dare I say, in lots more medicines and personalized medicine technology, we should maybe take a little bit of that money and put it into pre-diabetes campaigns and into behavioral change campaigns and into community engagement. Um, and again, we've got the advantage in some ways in type two of trying to make lifestyle changes that will prevent the onset of the disease. That's not, that's not the case in other areas, but you know, I, I, th- I think we're missing a trick. You know, Novo Nordisk has a cities changing diabetes initiative and and that works, I think, in the last count at 20, 25 cities around the globe, trying to look at the social determinants of health, because it all ain't just about health behaviors and about medicines, it's about the way we environmentally build cities, it's the way that food is available, it's a, it's about employers and how employers support people. So it's it's um it's a multifactorial societally wide issue think one of the things we're stuck in health is a lot of our practitioners going back to my experience thanks very much you've got a condition here's your tablets goodbye not a broader discussion about what motivates you what doesn't motivate you is it complications what do you think of medicines Uh, do you have access to good food do you want somebody to talk to you a little bit about that what does your family eat you know what does your community eat what's what's your preferences so there's a there's a much, much bigger conversation to be had. And I keep harping on about it, but that's, it's about understanding the person, the family. One little uh, vignette that really struck me, I was doing some work with, uh, at that time, I think it was DeepMind, which was bought by Google. Mm-hmm. And one of the big senior CEOs came over from America to meet us and say, you know, we're going to move forward and whatever we do, we'll make sure, you know, nothing about us without us will involve patients in the work that we do. Um he took me aside at the lunch break and said to me, he said, you know, in America, he'd just come from one of the health management organizations. And he said, you know, when we find somebody is a type two, we don't prescribe the medicines. I said, well, that's interesting, given the story I've shared. I said, what do you do? He says, well, with permission, we we go to the patient's house. And we sit down with the entire family and we bring a health psychologist and a dietitian uh, uh, and a personal trainer, you know, who really knows their stuff. And we sit and we go through their week. And what we do is we plan interventions that are more healthy food, that are more activity driven. We work out how they get to work if they have work and all these different things. And we basically do this massive big plan of how to live their life with type 2 diabetes, he said. And what we end up having is we save... I think he said something like $120,000 per patient per year. He said, but what we also do is we've trained or supported the family to eat better and to be more active so that we actually prevent the family taking on board some of those issues. And I thought, what a great idea. What a great public health, societally based, you know, family based community intervention. Just a different way of thinking.
0: I'm wondering if there are any other areas where it's actually happening and that's a common um, common practice to do that. I can't think of any, actually.
1: Well, I, I know that, I mean, it, it, bringing digital health into the conversation, there's a lot more um, motivational, Apps, you know, yeah. prize-giving tools, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's companies that are out there looking, you know, there's, there's loads of them. There's Zoe, there's Sweatcoin. Uh, I think Noom, I don't know if they've rebranded, but you know, there's a, there's a lot of companies out there who are looking at the behavioral change and supporting that. Most of us, uh, not all of us. And we need to take account of that, but most of us have a phone now, you know? Uh, but again, it goes back to, do you, do you want your phone to be your healthcare buddy or not? If yeah, you, yeah. if you're, if you're, not interested in medicines taking if you're not interested in lifestyle change then just because you've got a phone in your hand doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be your health buddy it could be the opposite
0: no and it it goes back to what you said it's finding your motivation it's like quitting smoking unless you're motivated you can go to any type of program and and you're going to struggle Uh, but if you find your motivation then it makes it much easier um so going back to to the diet and and the like consciousness of of food that you eat how do you do like for example when there's a festive season or like is it something that you have to be quite strict about or or yeah, is yeah. letting the diet go for a week fine
1: uh, So I lost a lot of weight um a, a, about a year or so ago, and then I've sort of slowly put it back on again. So it needs to to be constantly aware of of food because you can just go down the rabbit hole um, and and end up, you know, consuming what you shouldn't consume. The challenge I have is that we ha- we observe the Sabbath on a Friday night and a Saturday, so sunset sat- Friday to sunset Saturday, and uh, we have three festive meals. So we have a Christmas dinner. Uh, twice a week so uh, and then our other festivals so we end up with roughly about 150 christmas dinners a year and we only have six fast days so uh, i'm surprised that everybody in the orthodox jewish community isn't obese uh, and i'm actually not sure whether we have a higher rate of obesity or not uh, sometimes it feels a bit like that so and then when somebody comes around to visit, not that that really happens so much, but, but you know, everything seems to have to be planned nowadays. But, you know, you'll say to somebody, we'd like a cup of tea and a biscuit or a cake or a slice of cake. You know, you don't really say to somebody, would you like a cup of tea and an apple? You know, <laughs> or maybe, or would you like a glass of water, you know, um, and some, some quinoa? Uh, um, you know, you know we're, we're taught to perhaps be hospitable with unhealthy food. So yeah, I'm I'm trying to say no to desserts. That that's my challenge. So I can I can eat, you know, a, a, a nice meal with protein-based and vegetables and a little bit of carb. But then it gets to, to ice cream time, and I just love ice cream. In fact, I'd rather have ice cream than listen to Sister Sledge, you know. Uh, <laughs> or maybe what I should do is eat ice cream and then listen to Sister Sledge and dance it off. But but you yeah. know, I think you need to do a lot of dancing. And that's that's the other thing that's really funny or or really sad is I don't think we realize a lot of us, even somebody who who, who I know a little bit more about food, but I'm not sure we realize how much how calorific food can be and how little. Or how much you need to burn it off with with activity, you know. So people will have a two, three thousand maybe uh, calorie meal and go to the gym and think that's all okay. But you know, you you can't out-train a bad diet. Um, so you go to the gym and you think you've done okay, but you've only burnt a couple of hundred calories if you're lucky. Having you know, and and, and then some people don't even know how to use the gym properly, you know. Um, and they'll go and they'll not necessarily do the right activities or they could not get the right form. So we're living in an environment where, you know, lots of food, uh, not really an understanding of calorie counting, or, or at least the calorific content of food in many cases. I mean, <clears throat> I wasn't taught anything at school. I wasn't even taught much in pharmacy school about food or or all that sort of stuff. And I, I don't know where, I mean, I qualified 30 years ago, but where are our healthcare professionals now? Do they understand nutrition? Do they understand activity? Do they understand obesity and the obesogenic diet? do they, Back to the health psychology, do they know how to coach people to begin to change their diets? I'm not sure yeah. I'm not sure they do. I mean, I had a, a pulmonologist friend of mine say to me, he said, Mark, you know, I was working for 10 years asking people if they smoked, but I never had the knowledge or the courage To say to them the next question, which would be, "How can I help you give up? Would you like to give up? And if so, how can I help you?" He said, "Because I just I didn't really have the knowledge. I knew how to treat respiratory conditions, but I didn't know how to prevent them." So he was a great caregiver, but not a very good coach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's tricky, definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you about metformin so you were um, prescribed metformin from the day you you, you were diagnosed uh, do you still take metformin now?
1: I do uh, twice a day but I've moved to the uh, enteric coated version to minimize gastrointestinal disorder I was getting um, slight upset and uh, probably about two years ago I moved to to the uh, the enteric coated one and uh, Oh, was it enteric coated or sustained release? Sustained release, that's it. It's the same uh, okay. version, yeah. not enteric coated. I'm getting my, you can see I haven't practiced for a while. Uh, and 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 I've, thank God, had no problems with with the sustained release. So I, I, I tend to try and take it when I come back from synagogue at eight o'clock in the morning and just before I go out to synagogue at eight o'clock at night. So that's my my two touch points. And back to the teeth brushing, uh, you know, um, that's the other option. If you're taking medicines twice a day, if, and if you can, keep your medicines container beside your toothbrush. What a, what a great way to remember to take your
0: medicines. Very good point, yeah. And do you have regular blood tests as well?
1: Uh, as a type 2, at least in this country, we're recommended to go once every three months, which I which I do. Uh, and that reminds me, I have not yet looked on my app, my NHS app, to see I did my bloods 10 days ago. I haven't had a text Often, if they're not doing well, I get a text. But um, sorry, that's my dog in the background. Somebody's come to the front door. So one of the disadvantages of not having an office. I hope, I hope it's not too obvious on the on the speaker. Uh, but I did um, many many moons ago have a um, freestyle Libra. I, I I bought one, and that was that 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 going back to some of the stuff we've talked about having that data. Uh, for a period of two weeks, really, really motivated me, and I think sitting here now, uh, I suppose if I were to, and I think I've got one upstairs. I think one of the things that I'm missing, and that might actually help me, is to stick that back in and to watch my glucose levels on a on a regular basis. Um, I think the way I'm really manage my diabetes just now is trying to make is a watch my diet, but I'm not necessarily calorie counting and weighing everything. That's just too much hassle. Um, But I am trying to do 10,000 steps a day. So I think maybe going back to having a way to monitor my glucose on a regular basis, I think could possibly be something. And you've made me think, hmm, uh, is it worth the investment? Can I afford it? Well, what price, longevity, and back to that point about, you know. uh, So I I think data is important, again, for some people. So you've made me think now, maybe... I'm traveling the next couple of weeks, but maybe when I get back and over the festive season, when you know Hanukkah and Christmas, maybe I should plug it in for two weeks and just see if that helps. Maybe a little bit more um, careful with my management. Thank you for yeah. Th- thank you for the stimulus.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so, so based on your experience, then I mean you've already shared a lot about what you what you would like to see in terms of of prevention um uh but how like is there any anything you would recommend someone like me does to hopefully prevent having diabetes in the future
1: yeah i I think it's i think it's back to those points about lifestyle and, and i think being aware of what you're eating uh, and 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 you know the even at a basic level of sort of the red green amber you know red amber green system that we've been using in the uk to some degree um you know eat mainly the green foods have a few of the of the amber and try and keep away from the red foods you know it could be as simple as that but again it's not been universally taken on board because there's obviously a food lobby and especially the food lobby that is producing red foods so to speak you know who 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 want you you know to to not use that system otherwise their sales are going to suffer so i think i think we all need to be i think in schools uh you know our schools educating their children on what good food is uh, and what and what not so good food is. And again, I'm not saying that we, you know, we've had sugar taxes, we've had we've had all these different things happen. I think we need to educate our 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 kids and our citizens more on on food. I think the second thing we need to do is really try to get away from the idea of the gym, and not that I'm against gyms, but act, we need to talk about activity, not exercise. So we really need to be promoting the idea of walking a lot more. Um, where appropriate, you know, getting off a stop earlier, taking the stairs instead of using the elevator. Um, you know, even even for 10 minutes after each of your meals going for a walk just round the block if that if that's appropriate and safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's important. I think we need to change um, I think we need to change healthcare from just, as I've said all throughout this, just fixing the problem. To, to trying to move into more of a behavioral science health psychology coaching support side of things yeah. so don't just fix a quick fix but actually let's try to do look at behavioral science to support you and in doing so let's set up peer-to-peer groups there's there. there you know it's, it's really wonderful to be going with a buddy uh, to try and lose mm-hmm. weight and to have competitiveness between you um, you know I'll try and lose more weight than you, and if you win, you're buying me the ice cream. You know, uh, not quite, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's that. that so, 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 so I think it, I think it boils down to more knowledge, more more activity, uh, more community spirit, uh, and I do think there's a place for uh, legal legal uh, policy levers and all of this stuff. I really do think we need to st- make it more difficult uh, around the promotion of of poor food. I really do. I think I think there's a there's a government responsibility. You know, I I worry a little bit, and and maybe I'm going off piste here, but I do worry a little bit that when I look at the sort of developing nations, that a lot of them want to have the big brand names for fast food in order to define success like the Western world and want big hospitals and all the rest of it. And I think to myself, guys. In many cases, you don't have the obesogenic diets and environments that we have here. Do as a favor, leapfrog that. You don't need that. D- define success by other measures. You know, by 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 personal healthcare, by community spirit, not by the need to have these big Western brands. Uh, you know, I I I freak out when you see the Olympics, and the Olympics are funded, for example, by by big brand names there are yeah. I, I don't understand that i just i
0: just don't understand that yeah i mean it, it's down to to money at the end of the day i'm pretty sure that's the answer uh but yeah no i mean that's a lot of very good advice um well i think that takes us to to my last question for today um which is one that i love asking everyone who comes on the on the podcast what's your happy place the place that, where you feel at peace so i think
1: i would have struggled to answer that about six or seven months ago but every tuesday night now where i can and i'm not traveling i go to a breath class in the center of manchester and i 16 of us wander into the class lie on the floor are blindfolded so we can't see each other and we do circular breathing for 45 minutes and then for the last 15 minutes you know we don't stop breathing that would be too long but we we go into our own rhythm and I find the little voice in my head that is always talking about you're this you're that you're this you're that your to-do list or this just switches off it just switches off so I'm now trying to do a little bit of mindfulness 15 minutes a day I tend to fall asleep when I do that at the moment so I need to work on a few things about not taking my phone to bed, working a little bit more on my sleep hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. But my happy place is my hour of breathing a week where I literally escape from everything. It's just lovely, just lovely.
0: Oh, sounds amazing. Uh, I had never heard of a uh, breathing class, so I'll, I'll look into that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah,
1: it's called holotropic or circular breathing. It's a very specific okay. type of it's. A, I think it's a yoga type exercise, but Mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you it's I, and you you I mean I've hallucinated within it
0: <laughs> really <laughs> yeah not well,
1: not like crazy crazy but I've, I've yeah. literally it, it allows it switches off the conscious mind and allows the subconscious mind to come in uh, and that then brings up a whole bunch of different stuff so it's it's I love it it's a it's not even a happy place it's a ecstatic place it's just I love it absolutely love it I get so sad when I can't go to my class because I'm traveling or whatever but I just love it.
0: Okay. Well, I'll look into that definitely. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Uh, A lot of very, very good advice, great discussion about like prevention rather than just fixing uh, the the, the immediate problem. Uh, So uh, I'm sure everyone will find this very useful. So thanks a lot for sharing.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.